very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview, just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. Give yourself the gift of truth. And I have an announcement. I would like to introduce V-Lounge, a place where truth seekers around the world can meet, listen to Veritas streaming 24-7, and discuss everything that matters in your pursuit of knowledge. Absolutely free and available to all serious truth seekers. That's all I want. That's the only requirement. If you are a truth seeker, you are welcome. Come and enjoy V-Lounge. Now open. Just go to our website. There's going to be a big red v on the right side and we'll see you there and the beautiful thing about this is that the system plays every single program we've done from the beginning and it's all randomized so i don't even know what comes next so it's good to be surprised but uh, it all plays at the same time so anybody around the world could be listening to the same material being played so you can comment and discuss what you're listening to hopefully this will be helpful to many people and uh, especially for those of you who are still considering becoming a Veritas member, this is a great sample for you. I hope you enjoy it. V Lounge, now open. It was the most deadly and destructive war in human history. Millions were killed. Billions in property was destroyed. Ancient cultures were reduced to rubble. World War II was truly man's greatest cataclysm. Thousands of books, movies, and documentary films have been devoted to the war. There has never been such a terrible retelling of the story. However, tonight, you will be placed at the scene, in the moment. Get ready to revise the his story, written by the victors. We should take one side, and one side only, and that is the side of truth. Tonight's special guest is Thomas Goodrich, right now on Veritas. Raised in Kansas and Missouri, as Michael Thomas Goodrich, before he began writing books, he painted watercolors for a meager existence in New England. He's a graduate of Washburn University. Thomas loves pure prairie and standing on historic ground when there is no one else around. In addition to his books on the American Civil War, the Indian Wars, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, and World War II, Thomas enjoys observing all things great and small 
and learning how they get along. Before he, before he majored in history, he majored in psychology. His latest book is titled Hellstorm, The Death of Nazi Germany, 1944 to 1947. And directly from Punta Gorda, Florida, I would like to welcome Thomas Goodrich. Hello, Thomas, and welcome to Veritas. Well, thank you so much, Mel, for having me, and thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. I, I think I'll have to save that. It's my pleasure. May I call you Tom? <laughs> yes, you may. Tom, this is a, what a book, what a book. And as I was telling you offline, we've been so programmed for decades during the war, before the war, after the war, to believe everything that the media tells us, the Ministry of Propaganda. But we think of people like Bernard Baruch. We think of people like the father of the propaganda machine, Edward Bernays. All those things together created one big story. And tonight, I want to put things in perspective. I don't want to take any sides. I want to take one side only, and that's a side of truth. Before, how did you get into all of this? How did you start revising the history that we were told? Well, Mel, that's an interesting question. Uh, probably you can tell by my voice that my carbon dating is fairly accurate for <laughs> World War II. I was not born during World War II, but shortly after. So therefore, I was raised in the environment of World War II. I had two fathers, actually, one a biological father and one a uh, adoptive father, both of whom fought in World War II, one in the Pacific and one uh, in the European theater of operations. And so uh, that and a string, uh, almost an unending string of old war movie with John Wayne leading the charge. Uh, I grew up in that element. And uh, quite honestly, I was a child of World War II. And I, I grew up believing the good war scenario. The greatest generation uh, fought that war. I, was, I believed in Eisenhower. I believed in uh, everything they did over there because after all, that's all I knew. It was on TV, uh, radio, all the movies. And uh, so what is a child going to do? Certainly, they're not going to ask any really uh, cogent questions uh, at 9, 10, or 11. So they believe what they hear and see. And they grow up believing that. Well, someday a child does grow up. They become an adult and they start snooping around. If they have a curiosity gene, they will explore certain, certain areas of history. Uh, that may not sound exactly right. How can any how can any people, how can any side be so perfect? Such a paragon as the Allied side was presented as. Uh, the greatest generation. My God, what a, what a term that is. The greatest generation. There's been a lot of generations of us, but that was the greatest. Uh, the good war. Um, sorry, but I've done a lot of research in war, and there has never been a good war. They're all bad. Where do these terms come from? And so that picked my interest. But more than anything else, quite honestly, Mel, I think I was born with a history gene. I think some of us have it. Some of us don't. I had it. And so uh, as after I graduated from college with a degree in history, uh, everyone assumed that I was going to teach history. Because other than that, other than that or selling insurance, that's about the only uh, avenues open to a history major. But I decided that I wanted to write. I was uh, smitten by uh, various good history writers at the time. And I just wanted to emulate these people, so to speak. So I went to work and I got a few books published early on on the American Civil War. And um, 
I enjoyed writing, and people seemed to enjoy what I wrote. So I continued. I tried to pick subject matters that were not being covered or were being covered up, even at that time during the American Civil War. Uh, of course, the South has come down to us as the uh, uh, devil incarnate. The Confederacy lost that war, of course. And uh, there is very little, even to this very day, that's said good about the Confederacy, the South, the rebels. And so I tried to balance out the scales of history and try to present the other side without being biased. And I should say this right now, before I go any further, that whatever I may say on this program, that's me personally speaking. What I write in history books is another matter. I pride myself in objectivity. I don't think a history book is any place to parade your bias. Although you may have plenty of it, this is not the place. This is the place for you to set the buffet table with the facts and allow the reader to come and partake. Take what they want from this table. Take By the way, that, that's the analogy that I always use, the buffet table. There you go. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful minds think like alike, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, and so uh, with that said, taking it up a notch. Every book I did, I came to the Indian Wars, and it, at the time, it was the most controversial book I had done, because unlike the movies we were uh, being subjected to, Little Big Man and uh, Dances with Wolves and uh, Soldier Blue, b movies that uh, were continually vilifying and denigrating the white people that were involved in these uh, movies, um, I, I took another approach. I took a, an approach, as I just mentioned, the buffet table approach. Let people come and take what they want. In the words of themselves, the people were doing the talking, not only the victims, but the victimizers, people, uh, the Indians, the soldiers, the wives, the, uh, the women who were raped, who were uh, captured by the Indians and raped. In fact, I have a chapter in there, uh, chapter eight, it's called A Fate Worse Than Death, and that may sound very melodramatic and Victorian and out of, out of uh, date, but let me assure you that it was a fate worse than death. It was not the common Harlequin romance uh, portrayal of a woman captured and falling in love with a rapist. Uh, it wasn't about a beautiful Western sunsets uh, and never, ever wanting to leave the tribe that she was uh, captured by. It was, uh, it was the ab absolute opposite of the 13 or 14 women I um, studied. Not a one of them wanted to stay with their red rapists. They were more than happy to escape. In fact, most women wanted to kill the Indians who had raped them. Uh, that's another story all itself. But let me say this, that uh, I found so much in there that was, well, I, I just have to throw this one anecdote in right now to show you what I mean about uh, covering things that have been covered up, so to speak. We all grew up, at least in America. I know you're from Puerto Rico originally, but in America, we all grew up as kids with this mantra. The American Indian, when he killed a buffalo, he used every part of that beast possible. Everything from the horns to the hooves. The, the, the hide was for, for teepees and for coats. Uh, the um, horns were for ut eating utensils. Uh, the guts were for something else. I don't know what. But everything was used. And now that's what we grew up with, and the, the, that was carved in stone. Well, guess what? When I did the research for this book, I found out that the American Indian could be just as wasteful as any white man ever born. When there was plenty of buffalo in the springtime, the Indian uh, – well, for instance, there are drops in the west where Indians would drive buffalo over cliffs. And as the buffalo lay down there helpless, their legs broken, quivering – uh, the Indians would go through just like a, a 
19th century supermarket picking out the choice meats. Uh, the tongue was a de- delicacy, as the hump was, and leave the rest to rot. Um, in the wintertime, yes, indeed, when there were very few animals, very few buffalo, the Indian uh, used every part of that animal. But guess what? So did the American settler. When there were plenty of buffaloes, yes, they, they, they shot them, they uh, left them to rot. So did the Indians when they got the rifles, they left them to rot. Um, and when there was wintertime, of course, they used them all. Uh, that's, that right there should be enough to tell anyone that there are plenty of, uh, plenty of accounts out there that still need questioning. Uh, I think it was you, Mel, that said something about um, question the answer. Uh, ask questions and then question, question the answers. The answer. yes, yes, that's that's beautiful. I, uh, obviously, I couldn't put it that well. Uh, had to copy from you, but that's the truth. And so, which leads us to World War II. Um, by far, it's the uh, most controversial book I've ever done because I'm looking squarely at the war as a neutral observer, so to speak. Now, uh, that said, this book is not about what the Germans did to the world. Their libraries are full of such books. Uh, TV, movies, that's all they talk about is the evil Germans and what they did to the world uh, or to Europeans or whatever. This book is the opposite. It's the first book ever to talk about what the world did to the Germans. And quite honestly, it's it's the darkest and best kept secret in world history. Never in history have so many people been raped. Never in history have so many people been tortured. Never in history have so many people been murdered. And Mel, never in history have so many people not known about it. So few known, so few people known about it. Um, and that's the reason for the book uh, is to show that there was another side, the loser's side to World War II. Um, and I, um, unfortunately, let me say this, there have been many, many good books written about various components, various aspects of what I call the darkest and best kept, uh, secret in world history. I might also add the greatest crime committed in history. Uh, there have been some wonderful, well-written books, but no one until I, I came along with my book, Hellstorm, have put them, put them all together into one package, one book about the various crimes that were committed in our name by by the greatest generation, the so-called good war. Um, it's, it's a book, again, like my other books. It's first person, you are their approach. It's in the words of the people themselves. They may kill me, that is, reviewers or people who hate me. They can kill me, the, the, the messenger. But it's very difficult to kill the message when it's in the words of the people themselves. And that's what this book is about. It's... Um, it's not only in the words of the victims, mostly German women, men, women, and children, but it's also in the words of the victimizers and what they thought about it at the time and what they thought about it later. Some, bless their hearts, they had a conscience, and they felt terrible about what they had seen, and sometimes even worse, they felt terrible about what they had done. But the book, uh, for instance, Allied Bombing. Uh, the Allies, the British, the Americans, they called it by different terms. They called it saturation bombing, or they might call it carpet bombing uh, or area bombing. But the people who suffered from the bombing, the women and children of German cities, called it by another and more accurate name. They called it terror bombing because by 1944, that's what it was, is terror, deliberate attempt to kill every man, woman, and child in every German city. It's, it's as simple as I can put it. Uh, I should tell you that the title of the book is Hellstorm, and the subtitle is 
the death of Nazi Germany, 1944-1947. So I'm talking about 1944 to 1945, which was the last year of the war, and then the immediate post-war years. I won't call them years of peace because it was not. It was war by other means, 1946-47. So 1944 to 1947. By 1944, there were no more targets left in Germany. The Allied um, Air Forces, uh, the RAF and the American Eighth Air Force, had total command of the sky. They had blown everything to atoms in Germany by 1944. And so what do you do with uh, the, the largest air, air forces on Earth? You don't just simply set them aside, put them in hangars and mothball them. No, you keep using them. And so that's where the terror bombing comes in. Winston Churchill, Churchill um, is the orchestrator of this. He sent his man to work, a guy named uh, Arthur Harris, Arthur Bomber Harris, to basically uh, just saturate Germany with bombs. The, the rubble down below, it could be blasted to uh, splinters, and that's what happened. Let me give you an example of what I mean by terror bombing. And this is a pattern that developed from this time forward all the way to the end of the war. Hamburg, Hamburg, Germany, a city of one million people in northern Germany, a beautiful city, had hardly been touched in the first few years of war because uh, the Germans surmised that it was because Churchill had an aunt living there or that it was such a beautiful city and very English in its, uh, in its uh, outlook that nobody in England wanted to destroy it. Well, they found out differently on a night, uh, summer night in 1943, when 1,000 planes flew into over uh, Hamburg and uh, let loose ton upon ton of uh, high-explosive bombs and blockbuster bombs, some of them two- and four-ton blockbuster bombs that would efface entire city blocks. Uh, when this raid was over, after about a half an hour, there was nothing left of Hamburg. It had been blown to splinters, atoms. And as the people, several hours later, are crawling from their, uh, the ones who survived it, is are crawling from their cellars and air raid shelters. And as the ambulances from beyond Hamburg and as the rescue workers are coming into the city to try to rescue the people that survived this raid, just then, another raid occurred, and that was the Americans coming in this time with uh, firebombs, phosphorus firebombs, to drop, deliberately drop on this city and ignite uh, the splinters into a, a, a firestorm. That's what it's called, a firestorm. Pardon me for that jet. There's a <laughs> jet flying right over the rooftop, it sounds like here. I don't know if you can hear that. Sure, sure. But, no um, problem. Appropriately, a uh, plane flying over here, getting ready to bomb me. But... Um, the um, firebombs, the, the fire sticks, phosphorus, were dropped in their tens of thousands. They were small, but once they hit, they ignited, and they let loose the napalm gelatin type of stuff, which um, started these fires very quickly, within minutes. The splinters that had been blown apart by the previous raid uh, caught fire. Civilian they, popu population, right? Yes, yes. We're not talking about soldiers. We're talking about mostly old men, women, and children. The, the young men are gone fighting at wars uh, in the fronts. And so we're talking about a helpless civilian population that has almost nothing to do with the war. But again, we're back to terror bombing. And that's the point of this terror bombing is to kill as many women and children as possible. Uh, it's a very sadistic, a very deliberate policy. Uh, had, had the Allies lost, of course, they would have been the first on the dockets by a world court for this huge world crime. But by the way, the uh, fires would spread so rapidly from the second bombing, the terror, uh, the fire bombing, that it created a fury. It created a vortex, a fire, a tornado, a flame. The winds were of hurricane strength. Uh, 
the the temperature within the middle of Hamburg and every other town after this was somewhere around 1,500 to 2,000 degrees. Heat like that has a terrific way of pulling in outside air to feed itself. Hurricane force winds dragging, throwing people into this fire. Those who weren't sucked into the flames were stuck in the asphalt of the streets, and then they quickly burst into flame. Um, and the flames itself, in Hamburg especially, uh, it went up three miles, this tornado of fire. Uh, now, that is a classic example of terror bombing. This started at Hamburg, and then it continued to virtually every city above 25,000 population until the end of the war. Of course, the best-known case is uh, Dresden. I think many of your listeners, listeners may have heard of Dresden. It's sure. the um, it's the most publicized and perhaps the most egregious example of terror bombing. Uh, but when you understand that every German city suffered similar to Hamburg and Dresden, then it's truly one of the world's greatest uh, crimes, one of the greatest, greatest war crimes. Of course, we did a very similar thing in Japan. Um, everyone knows of Nagasaki and Hiroshima and the atom bomb attacks uh, when the war was already over, by the way. I'm working on a book on that right now, too. Um, but they forget about the, the terror bombing of Tokyo. Tokyo was, I think, 100,000 population died in one night of terror bombing there. So by this late stage of the war, it's a plan of the Allies to uh, kill as many people as possible. Um, there is no, there's no military value to this. Uh, and so if someone wants to chirp in and say, well, they were making munitions, whatever, uh, they damn sure weren't doing it in Dresden. Let me tell you that. Uh, there was nothing in Dresden that uh, – Anyway, that's another story, but I do talk about that and Dresden, of course. And here's an aspect of the Allied air war against Germany that very few people have heard about. Uh, even those who have heard of Dresden know nothing about this. It's something called the Targets of Opportunity. And that was a plan by the um, Allied leaders to allow American and British airmen to shoot anything that moved in Germany. Anything. Uh, they could, uh, in fact, not only could they, but they did. It was, quite honestly, it was a Turkish shoot. It was a, um, a, 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 almost like a video game. You can imagine a pilot having a hell of a time up there shooting at passenger trains. Was that, the, was that the Morgenthau plan that allowed that? It, it was part, in part the Morgenthau plan. Of course, the, um, the hate-filled evil that was the Morgenthau plan filtered down into other areas. Now, I'm not saying Morgenthau and the, the uh, evil creators who came up with that plan said, okay, let's have uh, targets of opportunity. But overall, yes, it has the whiff of the Morgenthau plan. Morgenthau plan was more of a, uh, a long-term approach to pastoralizing Germany, uh, 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 covering over its mines, uh, stopping all of its industry, starving the people to death until uh, within a couple of generations there would be no more Germans left, period. Basically allowing two-thirds of the population to die outright from starvation. And then the, through sterilization, through um, uh, avaricious neighbors who hated Germany, and Czechoslovakia comes to mind, Poland, uh, there would be no more Germany left. But that plan was in place long before the war even began. Uh, that's what the book, book brings out uh, by American Jewish uh, writers. They had already argued uh, way before the war began for America that Germany must cease to exist. These were some of the titles of their books and their articles. Um, 
very vicious and very, uh, very deliberate. And they spell it out to a T that Germany must cease to exist. And uh, it, uh, amazingly, um, American magazines, one, I think it was Time magazine, said that's a, that's a splendid idea. The New York or the Washington Post said it's a, a novel approach. Let's do it. Let's go for it. And of course, they had a very welcome ear in FDR, perhaps the greatest war criminal in American history. We've had a few of them. But uh, what he did uh, by boxing Japan in and basically giving no them no room to move uh, with Pearl Harbor. Yeah, FDR uh, wins the award as, as my uh, world's greatest mass murder, quite honestly, for the uh, onslaught, the bloodlust that uh, he had for Germany. Uh, Japan was just um, incidental, by the way. They had always looked upon uh, Europe as the main place to. Uh, of course, we had he had Morgenthau, he had Henry Dexter White, he had Bernard Baruch, he had people like that whispering in his ear, "We've got to kill the Nazis, got to kill the Germans." Um, and so, the targets of opportunity, though this was another aspect of the air war that just it's it's so sadistic um, that it's it's hard to talk about. Uh, Allied pilots, American pilots. It could have been, uh, you know, your grandpa. It could have been your your dad, even uh, shooting passenger trains that are generally filled with women and children, uh, buses, boats, farmers in their fields, for God's sakes, uh, women on bikes, e- even animals in their pastures, children in schoolyards, for God's sakes, and they did this. Uh, Red crosses on hospitals; these were special targets. Uh, this is high war crimes, but this went on. Um, but uh, I, I. I Get ahead of myself, Mel. If you, if there's anything you want to say, please just jump right in there. But sure. Uh, well, let, let me just take a step back for a moment. Mm-hmm. Going back to your time in in academia, how different was the history you were taught and what you expected to teach after you graduated? Um, I would say that it was suitable. Uh, my education, my college education, I had some very good professors. But, you know, let's face it, academia is a, is a controlled profession. You cannot say what you want to say and get away with it. Uh, you'll suffer in various ways, as we both know. I, um, I didn't have any high-flown ambition as a college student. I didn't know much. I knew that the Certain things just weren't adding up, but I didn't have any great questions at the time. So I think my education was adequate given the circumstances. But you're right. Uh, when I finally graduated, wrote a few books and got fairly well known, uh, a, f- a former favorite uh, professor of mine who was uh, chairman of the department, he was outgoing, offered me a position to teach. And I thought that was just a high honor. I, I turned him down, though, because I knew that I would be um, – in a straitjacket. I would uh, not be able to say what I really knew, and that would be very difficult for someone like myself to say, uh, to, to spout off with certain truths that are self-evident. And so, uh, you know, the, the academia is a, is a kept, just like the media, just like the government, just like uh, the arts and um, even even medicine anymore. It's, it's a, these are Jewish enclaves. They have been taken over and uh, by Marxists and the the uh, nonsense, the poison they spout is inimical to the uh, host population. That's us. And uh, so I really want no part of uh, that world, uh, even though it, it paid well. But still, I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. And I've got to say, Mel, thank you so much. I didn't get a chance to say this. Thank you so much for 
providing me this opportunity, this venue. Without people like you, people are not going to hear about people like me. And uh, it's as simple as I could make it. So uh, bless your heart uh, for having me on. And uh, but anyway, uh, thank you for being here. I mean, because if I worked for a big outfit, I can guarantee it that even though if I wanted to have you on, I would not be allowed to have you on. So I'm glad that we don't have any strings pulling us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it's it's a sad state of affair. But on, looking on the good side of it, it's created a whole new industry, and that's called alternative media. My God, we are we've got our own media now. We've got people like you that are not afraid of the truth. Welcome the truth. Embrace the truth. Actually defy falsehood. Uh, this is a high time to be living. There are some times that when I used to get uh, depressed and I would uh, think, oh my God, why was I born in this period? Uh, a period of slavery. Freedom, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a joke. There it's is illusion. A, yes. And then I, then I start thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. There is a real reason to live. There's a purpose to live. It's called freedom. This isn't freedom we're living in. Fight for freedom. And that's what what's so exciting about the Internet. People like yourself, we're developing our own media. It's a truth media, as you say. Uh, you you know, Veritas, that, that says it all right there in a nutshell. And I want to, you know, I read your um, mantra, more than a show, this is a movement set on informing the world, teaching and finding out everything about the hidden knowledge being kept secret from humanity, an oasis of truth and light in a desert of deception and darkness. Uh, that is beautiful. That's po poetic. That's it. Uh, that's it. And you know what? It's all getting back to, to, to the subject here. It's all about the propaganda, Tom. When we hear Israel is attacking Palestine because they sent a rocket over. But we're not told why the rocket was sent over. We hear of Pearl Harbor. We don't hear what pushed Japan to attack Pearl Harbor. There's always the other side of the story missing. I'm going to say this again. One of the biggest traitors, as you said, this country ever had was President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. When he tell that to a veteran, they get mad at you. But when you explain to them... They start getting, even though the population did not want to go to war, he knew that he could get us to war by provoking an attack and slipping into the, the war via the, the back door. So he slapped a crippling embargo on Japan. So why is it that none of this, or the Australians telling us that the Japanese were coming for weeks before this happened, why is it that the people don't, don't embrace this as something that they need to? You know, um, we have that saying, I'm sure... Other countries have the very same saying, but in America, uh, if we do not learn from our history and our mistakes, we're doomed to repeat those mistakes. Well, that's true, but you first have to have a history that's published. And in World War II, there, there are not that many books available to find out the truth. I know exactly what you're saying. Uh, for, for instance, it's been 70 years. My book is the first book to come out and list the crimes. Uh, there are books that talk about various aspects of the crime. 70 years, one book. And it's a very hard uh, book to, to get people to read, too, quite honestly. It, it's been overpriced for quite a while. Now it's finally in paperback and ebook. But now, um, well, for instance, uh, you're talking about uh, Pearl Harbor. Uh, a former father-in-law who was in the Navy in World War II in the Pacific 
Um, I bought him for Christmas present the book um, Infamy by John Toland, a famous historian at the time. And it was uh, talking about exactly what we're talking about. FDR had prior knowledge of uh, the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor. And so did uh, other upper ups. Um, now, I loved my father. Don't get me wrong. He was a wonderful guy. We laughed, uh, fished. Uh, and I thought his mind was more open than that. But I found out exactly like yourself, he wouldn't even read the book. He wouldn't open the book because he was stuck in that, as you mentioned, the belief part of life, not the knowledge part. He had to stick and embrace that belief, that religion, that can't. The chant that it was the good war. Because if he, if not, if he read that book and was convinced of what the word said, then he was for naught. He fought the bad war. He was not the greatest generation. He perpetuated evil. Now, that would have been the message. And of course, it's easier to just ignore and hang on to your beliefs. It doesn't take a lot of effort or work to hang on to a belief. You just have to hang on tenaciously. But knowledge, on the other hand, as you well know, takes some work. Takes quite a bit of work, actually. Also takes a bit of bravery, I must say. But uh, uh, it's, uh, as I mentioned, we cannot learn from a history unless the history is there available for us to learn from. We're committing some of the same mistakes as we did in World War II. Look what's going on right now in the Middle East. Um, it's a slaughterhouse. It's a slaughter fest. Uh, as you mentioned, Israel um, invades Gaza, kills 2,000, mostly women and children, targets kids playing football on the beach, for God's sakes. Um, call it a war. That's like calling a massacre a misunderstanding. It was a slaughter in Gaza. Um, this entire episode of uh, false flagging to get America to fight its filthy battles in the Middle East, Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Yemen, and on and on, uh, staging one coup after another, whether it be in Egypt or Kiev. And this is all because we did not learn from World War II history. You know, I've got a feeling that had the people known what really happened in World War II, I think if they had known, down to the nth degree, if they had known about this book, they would have said in with one unified voice, they would have been so horrified by what happened, they would have said, never again. Never again will something like this ever happen. Not in our name, not in our time, never again will the world go through one of these. But the world didn't find out because there was nothing to find out about. The, the World War II history has been kept under wraps so neatly, so tightly, uh, and so well sealed that that's what we're doing right now, Mel, is talking about it 70 years later. But when, we, when you say never again, that seems to be a phrase monopolized by a certain group. <laughs> and I have to say to that, what about Stalin? What about the millions that he killed in Ukraine and the famine and everybody else? Why is it that just... And folks, once again, I've told you this many, many times. I just want the truth. And if other millions were... If six million Jews were killed, okay. We can explore that. We, we've discussed this before. But more than that was killed. We're killed by Stalin and, and, and even what happened after Germany surrendered. Why is it that this is not talked about? Um, well, it helps when you own the media, when you control the media, when you uh, 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 have a stranglehold on the dissemination of information, as the Jews have for the past 100 years. 
you're going to pretty much get people believing what you believe or what you want them to believe. And that's exactly where we're at in this point in time right now. In fact, it's still a really hard sell for most um, most Americans, most people in the world, quite honestly. Uh, what we're saying right now sounds as preposterous as I suppose if we were talking about a flat earth rather than a round globe uh, to some people, unfortunately. But as I said, times are changing. Uh, the alternative media, the internet, the uh, ability for people to get a book published without going through Jewish publishing houses, um, that is on Create Space with Amazon. Uh, this is all changing now. And um, uh, it's exciting. But as you say, uh, the stranglehold on communication, that's, uh, I don't know if the Chinese, uh, the, the famous Chinese the writer, uh, Shin Su, I believe his name is, I don't know if he mentioned control of communication, but probably he did because you can win all, you can win the wars, you can pacify everybody if you own what they know, what, you're, what their, their knowledge. And that's the way it's been. So we are, uh, and that's the reason I couldn't find a good publisher, even though I've uh, had some very well uh, received books uh, in various uh, military book clubs, uh, history book clubs, Doubleday book club. Uh, I was, this book was written roughly 20 years ago. I could not find a publisher for this. And so uh, after I, beat my brains out. Not surprisingly. Yeah. I, I put it up on a shelf and you can imagine the anguish I felt putting this book away, knowing what was in here, but being unable to find a publisher. And again, this was uh, something like 15, 20 years ago. So uh, alternative media was just piping in then. And um, I knew nothing about CreateSpace, which is a platform of Amazon, which it's this in essentially a self-published book but vastly cheaper and you get a lot of help from the people there at amazon and create space and they put out wonderful packages and you're in control of your content you can write anything you want in there i hope you write something well something literate but you don't have to you can write any kind of garbage you want or any kind of truth you want that's the more important thing and so had i known that of course i would have immediately uh, put the book in through CreateSpace, but it wasn't available then. Uh, and I did find a, a small publisher, a normal publisher, who had the guts, the um, integrity to publish this book. Uh, this was back in 2010, but in my opinion, the book was way overpriced. The hardbacks were. And I made it my duty to sell out every one of those hardbacks so that I myself could publish a cheap, affordable paperback and ebook. Um, at, it doesn't take away from the fact that the, this publisher uh, produced a very beautifully done book, I must say. It's as good as any book I've ever uh, had published. Uh, but it was just overpriced, in my opinion. Now, finally, uh, that and a movie, it's being made on the, uh, the the book Hellstorm. It's a documentary film. It should be a very good one. Certainly, it'll be the only movie of its kind. But it should be available, I think, sometime after Christmas. Uh, but anyway, I digress, and I should mention— Well, hold for a second. If I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but just, just yeah. about that, the, the, the fact that the publisher— and I hate to say they were brave in the land of freedom of expression, yeah. where we can actually yeah. say whatever we need to say. We're not, we're not trying to change history here. We're trying to revisit it, the, the, it with the truth. And the fact that some people are afraid to go into a show and discuss this— you cannot go into the mainstream media because we know who owns the mainstream media. We know who owns the, the newspapers, publishing, Hollywood, you name it. 
unless we find an alternative route, which is exactly what we're discussing tonight. But it's embarrassing to me that in the land of the of freedom of expression, we have to tread with care, walk on eggshells, be apologetic sometimes, because we're trying to tell the truth. Why is that? Yes. And, you know, it's uh, interesting that you bring that up. Uh, we hear this stuff mouthed uh, night and day, and especially yesterday, Veterans Day, about uh, all we owe to the soldiers and the troops somewhere on earth uh, fighting for our freedoms. Have you ever heard anything stupider than that? Fighting for our freedoms? Yeah. People 5,000 miles away uh, killing shepherds and, and goat herds and people who are fighting for their freedom, I guarantee you, they're not fighting for my freedom. If, if they were, they'd come home and probably surround Washington, D.C. Now, those are the only people on earth after my freedoms, the ones in Washington, D.C. But uh, anyway, that's another subject altogether. But yes, I find it uh, curious, ironic that in the so-called home of the brave, land of the free, that we're actually, there are people who tremble who actually uh, lose sleep uh, if they thought they were ha going to be accused of being a racist or an antisemite or uh, just out of out of step with the norm. You know, there are people, and I know I've got people that I call friends, that I think they would prefer to have an arm sawed off very slowly by a dull butter knife before they said one thing that was contrary to what the system wants them to say. In other words to come right out and say, um, well, any number of things, to, to object, to, to agree with anything I'm saying about this book. They would never do that because that would be countenancing or agreeing with what I said. Um, so, yes, we, uh, you know, George Orwell, gosh, what, a, what an incredibly uh, uh, far-seeing, prescient individual he was. Uh, certainly, he looked right down into our souls and that's where 1984 came from. He knew our capacity for for um, for uh, uh, what what would be the word for self uh, patrolling oneself or patrolling patrolling ourselves, our thoughts, our emotions. Um, yeah, we're very good keepers of our own slaves uh, within us. Um, but thank goodness uh, there are enough people like yourself, Mel, that uh, really. It, it boils down to something like this. Is it, what do you choose in life? Do you choose to uh, live a life of lies or would you prefer to actually be killed knowing the truth or defending the truth? Um, it depends on how much uh, you value that life. I don't value it enough. When I live in a, a slaveocracy, like I, like I feel I do in America. Slaveocracy. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I prefer the freedom, even though it may kill me. I still prefer to know the truth. Veritas, veritas excuse me. Um, um, unfortunately, the vast majority of uh, folks, they prefer a life of lies, a life at any cost. Uh, but the good news is uh, our numbers are growing, and we've always had those people who accept the status quo, who will not lift a finger to to fight for freedom real freedom i'm not talking about uh, fall freedom in afghanistan or iraq i'm talking about freedom right here and now in the united states um rather than lift a finger during the american revolution i think it was like 86 percent never lifted a finger of the colonists 86 percent never helped the other 13 or 14 uh, percent who actually 
directly and indirectly fought the American Revolution. I'm sure those numbers are very similar today, Mel. So very little has changed. It's, we, have the, we have the producers and the consumers, and then we have the uh, freedoms and truth seekers. And the percentage is skewed always. It seems 86% versus 13 and 14%. And I think, um, I think, Tom, the beauty, the beauty of the internet, as long as it's not regulated, as long as the Trans-Pacific partnership that you probably have heard about doesn't come true. We have heard the, lately saying that Obama wants to, to protect the internet. But what people don't know is that the TPP is part of it. And this is something being dealt with in closed doors with a lot of large CEOs, before we know it, one day, you may turn on your website, they may see a big banner saying this website is no longer available. So as long as we have the freedom here to talk about this, we're fine. And the beauty of what I'm saying is maybe people are listening to us right now and they don't want to shatter the paradigm and they listen to us, but they, they think, la, 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 I don't want to hear anymore. But maybe next week, maybe next month, maybe next year. They listen to us once, one more time, because you cannot tell people the truth and, and expect them to take it immediately. Truth has to be realized. You show them the door. It's up to them to open that door and go through the door. And I think this is what's happening right now, what you and I are talking. Maybe somebody's going to listen to this a year down the road, and they're going to get it finally. And this is where percentages magnify. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, my own personal experience uh, I tried to skate through through life. I tried to swim with the current and get along because I was fearful like uh, any other person. I was fearful of uh, um, harming my family. I was fearful of uh, uh, failing at life, that I might be uh, ostracized. And uh, I was fearful of a lot of things, the very same things that keeping keeping most people away from the truth today. But at some point in my life, I got tired of uh, wrestling with the bed every night because I didn't like myself. I got tired of watching others do what I should be doing. People who were uh, very ill-equipped, in my opinion, to fight the battle for freedom. And here, I had so much going for me. I had what I think is a fairly good intellect. I had a good, strong body. I had a curious, uh, curious nature. Um, and I had this gene in me that wanted the truth always wants the truth, even if it kills me. And eventually, Mel, I got to the point where I was sick to death of myself. And it's, I guess it's sort of like homosexuals, uh, gays who come out of the closets the way it used to be. It was such a, a, a transformation. Well, I feel the same way. I feel free. I feel relieved. I feel like I'm finally living the life I was meant to live. A life of freedom, a life without fear. Yes, true. I may be killed because of what I say at some time, but uh, I'm going to live it up until that day, and I'm not uh, going to shut up uh, because probably like the gays who came out of the closet, it, it just feels too damn good now. After a life of misery and darkness, finally. Um, now, maybe I'm using, maybe a lot of your folks won't like the, that analogy. It was the first that came to my mind. No, that's but, fine. So we have we have soldiers write to us all the time, and they tell me, "Look, Mel, I've been listening to you now for years. I have one more year to go. I know exactly why I'm here now. I wish I had known this before I enlisted, but it's too late. If I open my mouth, I'm going to be dishonorably discharged. So I have to continue. I have Jews who listen to the show who say to me, "You know, thank you." 
I want you to know that I don't feel bad that you're trying to get to the truth. I have homosexuals who listen to us all the time. So I open the doors to everybody who wants the truth. I don't care who you are, your creed, your race, your color, your origins. I don't care. We all want the same. We want the truth. Gotcha. Check, check, and check, and check. Uh, I agree with all everything you, you're saying. Um, and I probably should move this along a little bit because sure. I, it sounds like a book only on allied terror bombing. It's not. It's just simply one of the chapters. Let me ask your listeners this. Um, if you had to name the, the two worst nautical disasters in history, what would you name? Would it be the Lusitania, which I think 1,200 people died as a precursor to World War II, America's entry into World War II, World War One, excuse me, or was it the Titanic, which sank in 1912? And everyone knows the story. But lots of movies made about it. 1,500 people die on that cold night off uh, Nova Scotia. Would it be one or two, uh, or would it be either one? Let me say this real quick. It's neither one of those. The world's worst nautical disasters occurred at the end of World War II when Soviet submarines and American bombers deliberately sank German refugee refugee ships that were trying to escape, flee from the approaching uh, Red Army of the Soviet Union. This is on the Baltic Sea. This is in the dead of winter. These are people desperate to get away because they know what's coming. And I'll talk a little bit about what's coming in a second. But they're jumping on ships in the Baltic ports. And some of these ships are cruise liners. Some of them are freighters. Some of them are small. Some of them are big. But these are the only ships running around on the Baltic because there are no German naval ships uh, anymore. They're either sunk or they're tied up in port. So anything moving, as the Soviet submarine captains knew, was a refugee ship. Nevertheless, they started target, targeting them as soon as they left port. Um, the Wilhelm Gustloff, some of your listeners may have heard of that. I doubt it. But uh, it was one such ship. It was a former uh, German cruise liner uh, used for refugee services here late in the war. And roughly, it was a ship built to hold 2,000 passengers and crew. That's a very modest passenger ship by uh, modern standards. But nevertheless, so desperate were the people to escape that the captain allowed anywhere from eight to 10,000 people to get aboard the Wilhelm Gusloff when it finally cast off, cast its ropes. Um, it didn't get very far. It got out into the uh, middle of the Baltic that night, around midnight, when the so Soviet submarine sent two torpedoes into its side. And uh, eventually the ship sank uh, very quickly, actually. But uh, when it went down, it took anywhere from seven to 8,000 people. Some people say 9,000. I mean, let's face it, who's counting? A few thousand here or there. But can you imagine? Can you, uh, can you wrap your mind around the enormity of that single ship being sunk? Eight to 9,000 people drowning in one ship. Compared to the Lusitanian and uh, Titanic, of course, it's... It's, it's, it's a gargantuan loss of life. But many other ships, some with 7,000, went down, some with 5,000. One American bomber hit a refugee ship that landed, just landed in its, uh, what, the, what the captain thought was a safe haven. Uh, a bomb hit it right in the middle, sent it to the bottom. 2,000 people died. 2,000. Right there, that small ship, I can't even remember its name, was more than the uh, Lusitania or the um, Titanic. Uh, Before your book... I've never heard of this before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it was a massacre. It was a massacre. And you're not even hearing about it today. I mean, wh where are the Robert Ballard, Ballards? 
uh, to go down and look for these ships, uh, to look for what the people had. I, I can tell you what they had. It was very pathetic possessions that people drowned with. Uh, the only things they had were the things they could grab up uh, within a few minutes and put in a package or a bag or a sack. And that went down with them, the, the humble things, the photographs, the silverware, maybe a, a baby spoon. But uh, mostly old people, women, and children uh, were the victims of this Baltic massacre. And it happened over and over and over again, this slaughter fest. Um, it's things like that that I'm pointing out in the book. And uh, we've got this wonderful idea of, well, first of all, let me say why the people were so desperate to get away from the Soviet Union, the Soviet Army, the Red Army. Um, Stalin's right hand, one of his right hand men was a fellow named, a Jew named Ilya Ehrenberg. And as the Soviet soldiers are about ready to break into Germany toward the end of the war, they've been chasing the Germans out of uh, Russia and out of Poland. And now finally, they're ready to break into Germany. Ilya Ehrenberg, this uh, Jewish propaganda minister, uh, made sure that every red soldier knew what his duty was. Uh, this is an example. Uh, Ehrenberg wrote these things and had them dropped from airplanes so that every frontline soldier and every rear echelon soldier, for that matter, knew what should be expected of them. Here's the quote. Kill them all, the men, the old men, children and the women, after you have amused yourself with them. Kill. Nothing in Germany is guiltless, neither the, neither the living nor the yet unborn. Break the racial pride of the German women. Take her as your legitimate booty. Kill, you brave soldiers of the victorious Soviet army. And this is just one. He sent dozens of these things down, different screeds that were encouraging these men to do their sadistic, sadistic worst. Um, now, let me say this. Uh, I was in the military once myself. I was also 18 years old, 19, 20. And so I know that at that age, a lot of my uh, fellow soldiers – I'm sure they had consciences. I'm sure they had souls, but they were not fully developed at the age of 18. Uh, we're capable at that age of doing some terrible things, trust me, some really terrible things. And we do those things. Uh, fortunately, for the ones who have consciences and souls, uh, we think about that when we're in 30s and 40s, when we develop that full consciousness. But can you imagine telling these unsophisticated peasant boys who come from villages that don't have electricity or running water, telling them to do these things. They're already pissed off because the Germans have been in Russia. Uh, the war has been going on there for two years, and Russia is devastated. They're already pissed off that their, their village or their farm has been burned because the Germans said there were guerrillas working from there. So you add the, uh, the, another shovel of coal to the fire and tell them, hey, it's okay. Kill all you want, steal all you want, drink all you want, but above all, rape all you can. And when you're through raping that woman, kill her. She's no more used to us. We don't want any more Germans, so kill her. Uh, a lot of those soldiers would uh, heed every word in that screed from Ilya Ehrenberg. Truly, Ilya Ehrenberg is one of the uh, most evil people I've ever read about in my life. Um, but anyway, so uh, you've got these unsophisticated, ignorant peasant boys breaking into Germany, and of course, hell was unleashed on the German communities. The Germans, by the way, had a very uh, naive understanding of what, what they were facing. Uh, Joseph Goebbels, the uh, 
propaganda minister from Germany. He was always pounding the, the pulpit saying, look, these are these Bolsheviks are beasts. They are Asiatic hordes that will be coming with them. Uh, the Americans are not any better. Look at them. Uh, and people, uh, he would he tried to warn the people. Uh, and people mostly ignored Goebbels because they had heard stuff before and they thought it was just the, the uh, government's way of trying to steal their nerves, trying to make them resist uh, and stay and fight. Um, unfortunately, the civilians found out very quickly that Goebbels had underestimated the, the uh the, the terror coming. Um, as soon as they got in, hell was unleashed on earth. And I opened the book with actually the first brief incursion of the Russians, the Soviet soldiers into uh, Germany where they raped everybody. There was nobody left alive. When the German finally counter attack, counter attacked and reclaimed that lost territory, they couldn't find anybody alive. Was that a Nemersdorf? Nemersdorf. Correct. Nemersdorf. Yes. yes. They found women, crucified on barn doors, spread-eagled. They found people with half their bodies missing. They found children dead, brained, uh, bashed their heads against rocks and boards. Um, men who tried to protect the women, 50 French POWs and a group of Polish workers. They tried to protect the people. They were killed immediately. They were castrated, then killed. Um, it was hell on earth. Uh, and that's how the book begins. And then we talk about the propaganda that would create such beastly uh, atrocities like that. But uh, as the reader finds out later on in the book, that's just the just the opening shot. That's just the it's, it seems almost harmless from what's coming later. Um, I try to make make it clear that even though they were very tough people, the Russian frontline soldier, he did some terrible things. But they were generally the white Russian. They were generally the Belarus and the Ukrainian and the white Russians. They were tough soldiers. They were shock troops. They did terrible things, but it was the rear echelon that did the damage, the true damage, that heeded the words of Ehrenberg more than anyone else. And these were Asiatics. Now, hold on. About that, about that. Was it that the Red Army was almost obliterated by the Germans and now... Stalin had to had to get people from you know Kazakhstan, Mongolia, and so on. And those were really the the ones who were the butchers. Yes, yes, uh, you're right. Germany, I think it was for every German soldier killed, there were five Russians killed. They were right. very efficient at uh, killing the Russians because the Russians had. I talk about this. You know, I'm, there is one year of war in here, and I do talk about what it was like to fight on the east and the west fronts. But the German, uh, the Russians, they, they were expendable. The Russian soldier was expendable. They would have mass charges, human waves, and they would be mowed down. These people would not even have weapons. The Germans would shoot them down uh, like it was grass. The people behind were expected to pick up the weapons and then fight with those. But that's how wasteful they were. Um, but yes, uh, eventually when the Russians turned the corner and chased the Germans out, they were using everybody, the Asiatics, convicts, um, even women. But yes, the rear echelon, the second wave of troops, they're always the worst. In every army I've ever studied, they are always the worst, the least disciplined, the most unruly, the and for some reason, the most sadistic. But these were mostly Asiatics in the Russian army. They were Mongolians. They were Kazakhs. They were Kaluks. They were from the Eastern uh, um, Soviets, the Eastern Republics. And these people were, as, as many Russian officers would warn the Germans before they moved on on the front lines, they would say, uh, you go now, you go quick. 
These people, my men are good men, good fighting men, but the ones that are coming behind, they're animals. You go quick. And a lot of people, of course, did try to flee. Uh, it was almost impossible staying between the first and the second wave. Uh, and so you were more or less stuck with what you got. And that's stick with the village, get rid of the liquor, try to hide all the liquor, and put your daughter in a, in a barn uh, up in the rafters someplace, hide her. And so when the um, second rear echelon finally rolled into town, it looked like something from the pages of a a medieval conquest, the Middle Ages. Uh, they came in with bellowing cows and sheep. Uh, they, they were truck drivers and they were cart drivers, but also they were herders because the Soviet Union traveled with its uh, its food was on the hoof, so to speak. They had cattle and sheep. And it looked like something right out of the pages of the, uh, the Middle Ages because here came these uh, you know, the Mongolians, they, they, they look wild anyway. And they're got jewelry strung around their necks. They've got garish clothes on that they've looted and plundered from the village down the road. They're, they're mostly drunk because they've been drinking everything from uh, fine cognac to gasoline. Uh, they're crazed. They've been told by Ilya, Ilya Ehrenberg that there are no laws. You could do anything you want. In fact, we demand that you do it. It's a duty that you kill Germans, that you rape their daughters and wives in front of them. And so that's what happened. Um, in a nutshell, after they killed who they wanted to kill, after they found what they wanted to drink, then they turned to raping. And the raping was on a scale that the world has never known before. Millions of German women were raped millions of times. And for those unfamiliar with rape, it's not just simple vaginal rape one time, and then the woman um, has the rest of her life to uh, to try to shed this terrible onus. Uh, in, the, in virtually every case, a woman's raped multiple times. And what do I mean by multiple? It just depends. Um, a woman could be raped anywhere from one to a hundred times per night. Uh, a woman, I say woman, I'm using that a a term, but I mean females actually, from 8 to 80. That was the age range. Of course, it varied. It, you could be a six-year-old child or a 90-year-old uh, great-grandmother. Um, there was no age, really, to put it, uh, to put it simply. Um, you would be uh, – it, it wasn't uh, – rape is not something that's necessarily a private affair. It can be public, as it was in this case. Women were raped in broad daylight, in the parks, on the sidewalks, in the roads, up against a wall, in the ditches. They could be raped in the homes, in the uh, churches. Hey, I got to tell you, the Jewish commissars that were with these guys, and Jews were everywhere as far as the commissar officers. These are political officers who are there to make sure that these people fight like communists, that is, kill everything in sight. So they're always there as cheerleaders or to blow somebody's brains out who's not doing enough killing. Um, when they rolled into a town, that's where most women, German women, thought they could find a safe haven, of course, is in a house of God. And, of course, that's the first place that the, uh, the Mongolians and the Jewish commissars uh, sent their men. They sent them right to the church because that's all the women they could possibly want. Uh, not just those women, the girls and children, but the nuns. That was a special target to and rape they, the And they nuns. deceived them. That they would, that they, the women would believe these officers, you know, we need some help. And they said, that's fine. Just get into the church. You'll be safe there. And once they were there in the church, they would send all their, their soldiers to rape. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, stand in line to do it, too. Uh, while the ones are out uh, standing in line to rape people on the streets, 
People are standing in line at the church, down the steps, and on the sidewalk to rape, rape, rape. It's a duty. It's, an, it's a privilege. It's an honor. It's as Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the famous Russian uh, poet sure. and writer, he said that it was almost a combat distinction to rape a woman, a German woman, of course, and kill her. Now, that didn't mean that Solzhenitsyn did it, but I think judging the man and his writing, I think probably he was also a very young man at that time and perhaps did some terrible things himself. Uh, that's the way he strikes me, but bless his heart. He more than made up for it afterwards by uh, purging himself of the demon and writing about it. Um, so uh, he's a very big man in my name, even though he probably did some terrible things like the rest of his uh, countrymen. But um, this rape, uh, it was so so depraved, so sickening. Uh, one woman said these Mongolians, these slant eyes, they called them, they were running around like animals. They would run from one uh, bedroom to the next. They would rape um, uh, for instance, uh, uh, some women would try to, uh, even if you had a disease, even if you were on your menstrual cycle, if you very ill in sick beds in hospitals, uh, they still came and raped. There was nothing to stop them, and they did it. It's it's beyond evil. It, it transcends uh, evil. It's it's a ghoulishness that uh, I've never ever thought about until I did this book, and how depraved how evil well they would even stand in line and this isn't an aberration this isn't an anomaly they would even stand in line to rape corpses and laugh about it in broad daylight i'm not making that up there are too many people that talk about it remember this is an eyewitness you are there approach to history even There's necrophilia jeez necro yes and so many are engaged in it all i can figure is the gasoline and the perfume that they drank made their minds so crazed that, in the words of Ilya Ehrenberg, don't forget, that uh, because I, I don't know of any earthling that could do such a thing. Uh, hatred is not the answer. That, I'm sorry, that doesn't cut it. Um, but anyway, and then when they were tired of raping the corpse, when it got as stiff as a, as a log, uh, some, some person would stick a, a, a rock or a log or a telephone receiver up the woman's vagina, signifying closed for business. And that's what I mean by depravity, uh, absolute evil and depravity. And this was not uh, isolated occasions. These were not something that just happened uh, sporadically. sporadically. Uh, this happened up and down through the entire Soviet invasion of Germany and its allies. Uh, rape, rape and rape. It was a uh, it was a spiritual massacre of German womanhood. That's what it was. It was an attempt. Let's put it this way. Um, if you were a German woman that, were ra that was raped a thousand times, and I know how that sounds, but still, when you talk about a group of men that may be in that town for as long as two weeks, and you're already being raped 50 to 100 times a day and night, uh, a thousand is within that range. Um, let's suggest that you survive this, that they don't kill you that you make it somehow. Well, then how do you get back to living? How do you get back to being normal? Let's just say you were a school teacher and you had had your classroom invaded one day by 50 or 100 Mongolians. And the first thing they do is make you get on your knees and service them. Give them oral sex, every damn one of them, in front of your class. And you do it, and you have to do it. Well, let me say this. How do you how do you get on with living after you've survived this? How do you go back to being a school teacher in a week or a month or a year? You, you don't. 
You simply don't. That's what I mean by a spiritual massacre. Or the families. Can you imagine the families, the, the men who had seen their women and their daughters and their granddaughters raped right in front of them? In fact, that was, that was one of the, the elements of this that is so disgusting. It was staged. It was planned. They wanted the men to see their women being raped. They wanted this to be a stage performance. Uh, most men, there's nothing you can do. You've, you're surrounded by hundreds of men that are drunk, crazed, armed to the teeth. What can you do? Can you step in there and say, stop, I'm going to, you'll be dead in a second. If you don't do something, how do you go back to being a father and a husband? And I know, I know that for those people who are listening to us, this must be tough to, to listen to. And I know truth is sometimes really hard to take, but this is part of our true history. This is what happened. And imagine also if you are, you know, lucky or unlucky to have survived that as a woman and lucky or unlucky to have survived that as a German soldier, for example, who comes back home to find this Thousands and thousands of divorces occurred the first year after the war. Didn't, didn't that happen? Yes, yes. There were 50,000, I believe, in Berlin alone after the war uh, divorces. Because exactly what you're saying, um, uh, the starvation was prevalent throughout the land. Americans weren't feeding anybody in their zone. They were starving them, actually. And so were the French. Well, hold it right there. I hate to interrupt you, but we have to yeah. break break the two segments to go to, to, to break and go to the next segment. But when we come back, I want to continue discussing this. I also want to know what you have found about General George Patton. Why did he die? Was he murdered? Because it strikes me as very interesting that immediately, boom, he dies. And he, he made some statements after the war was over and i think he realized what we had done but all of this when we come back how do people buy hellstorm thomas uh they can pick up a copy through amazon or they can uh, that is a paperback or they can get an ebook on amazon also or they can get get a hold of me uh drop twenty dollars in my paypal account mt goodrich at aol.com that's m as in michael t as in thomas Goodrich at AOL.com, and that includes postage, and I'll ship a book out the very next morning, $20 in my PayPal. And this is a book, it's a very, very long book, one that you have to read multiple times in order to get it all, but all these stories, on a first-person basis, you are actually transported to the same time, and it's tough to read, but once you read it, you come out knowing so much more, and you realize that what you've been told is such a big lie. And I want to explore more when we come back. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to Veritas. And I'm here with my special guest, Thomas Goodrich. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy.
Jim Travigan, right here on Veritas. Beam me up on Veritas, Mal. Always willing to talk.